can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Sorry for the, uh, the ghastly glow that's going to be coming from the uh, computer screen here. I didn't, didn't want to rush to the office to print my notes as usual in the snow and, uh, and then back. So I'm reading it off com- computer this morning. Um, there you go. So um, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're in a new series. We're starting it this week, and it'll be going for seven weeks, uh, the, the ABCs of our church, seven weeks of sort of the characteristics of ascension, uh, things that we care about, ways that we go about being the church and, um, and doing what the church is supposed to do, and things that define who we are and why we do what we do. So basic, um, basic vision, mission, core values type stuff. Um, now, if I were the dynamic vision caster leader guy that I'm supposed to be probably, uh, then you'd all have seen glossy brochures with this on it the first time you visited, and members would pretty much have it all memorized by now, these kinds of things. But uh, we might not have a succinct version of this somewhere yet, um, but if you've been around Ascension for a while, I think you'll recognize that these are things that we're always talking about. Uh, these really do characterize uh, everything that we say and do. So uh, hopefully this series will be a helpful resource for us as a congregation to give some clarity uh, to the, the shape of, uh, of our church and the priorities of our church, maybe especially as, uh, as an introductory tool for visitors and newcomers and, uh, and new members. Uh, and if any of you want to help me figure out how to make a glossy brochure out of this material, then uh, I'm open to that. Um, it was a bit difficult deciding how to package this information and communicate it. Uh, I wondered if maybe we should stick with classic formulations like the marks of the true church, kind of a historic, reformed uh, way of uh, looking at this or um, uh, whatever, but it seemed like articulating these things in our own context was kind of the whole point, so you've got seven C's. That's what you've got. Um, uh, we're starting the series with Ascension's basic confession, our confession, and there is a deliberate order uh, to the sermons in this series, so there's a reason why we're starting with our basic confession, and we'll talk about that. So um, uh, let me pray, then I'll read the text. Father, we are glad that you have uh, not left us without knowing you in the dark, but you've uh, revealed yourself to us through the word, and we're glad that we have it in front of us this morning, that we have so many freedoms to um, be able to enjoy and study and celebrate your word to us. We pray that you would make your word real to us this morning, that you would um, make the gospel real to us, that you would give us clarity in our minds and in our hearts, uh, that you would warm our affections by your Holy Spirit as we consider your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the church has been entrusted with a confession. That's what we're talking about this morning, Ascension's basic confession. We've been entrusted with a confession. We've received an apostolic gospel. That's language in our text. Uh, We've received a faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
familiar Bible language from the New Testament. Uh, We have a teaching that's been given to us that we need to closely watch for our salvation, for the sake of our, our salvation. We have something to believe about God as he is revealed uh, it in the scriptures. And so a confession, very basically kind of a definition here, it is an articulation or a distillation of the Bible's essential teachings. Basically, it's a proclamation of the gospel. Right? A confession is basically a proclamation of the gospel or an articulation or a distillation of the gospel as we see it in the scriptures. Without a confession, without an understanding of the Bible's teachings, uh, without a proclamation of the gospel to the world, we wouldn't be a church. Um, Jesus said that we have to confess him before men. And we are actually united around this common confession. In fact, when we gather as a congregation uh, every week, our confession of faith is central as we come to the table, as we come to express our unity that we have with each other and the communion that we find with God, our confession of faith is a central component of that. We gather in our common confession at the table, and, and at the same time, we're public, publicly proclaiming it, right? We're, we're publicly proclaiming unity that's found uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the unity that is found in our confession. So we're a confessional church, Maybe that's not familiar language to you. Maybe it is. I don't know. But it's an, it, we're a confessional church. It's an interesting thing to say in one sense um, because it, it distinguishes us from churches that don't deliberately identify themselves as confessional. But in another sense, it aligns us with the broad stream of the historical church. Right? So it's basically it's strange. You know, what makes us distinct, what really sets us apart is that we're normal. Right? Um, or we, we just believe what the church has always believed, unlike the other churches out there that are they're trying to be novel, right? Um, so it might sound a little funny, and I don't mean, mean for it to sound condemning of other churches, but really we're trying to highlight what we have in common with the Christian church throughout the ages when we talk about being confessional. We're trying to highlight the commonalities, right? the, the basic essential gospel that we share. So, so what is the content of the confession? Because really that seems to be the important part, right? Not just the fact that we have a confession, but what it, what it really is, what it means. Uh, and so we're looking at Paul's text in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is, um, this is the great capstone of his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, when, when Paul writes to address problems in the church, maybe you're familiar with uh, the book of 1 Corinthians to some degree, probably the first thing you think of is all the problems in the church that he's addressing, right? But when he addresses those problems, the problems of sin, uh, personal issues, relational issues, he, he always connects the lives of Christians in the church to the roots, the fundamental elements, the basics of the gospel. He always does that in all of his letters. Right? Uh, he expects our confession our understanding of the gospel, to have a transformational effect in our lives. So when he writes this letter to the Corinthians, to a congregation that's rife with conflict and scandal, he ultimately appeals to their common confession. Ultimately, he's appealing to their common confession as something that will uh, transform them, right? Uh, something they can cling to for their, uh, their salvation and their renewal. So <clears throat> he says uh, in verses 1 and 2, Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you've believed in vain. So he's calling attention to the fact, this is, this is kind of basic stuff. <laughs> I've already said this. You've already put your faith in it, right? Haven't you? 
so we've already, we've already acknowledged this is stuff that we have memorized. We have it down pat, but this is the transformational stuff that you need to hear again, right? And so he then summarizes the gospel simply and succinctly. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul is saying he didn't make this stuff up. He received it. This didn't sprout from his imagination. He received this from Jesus Christ himself. He received this message as a messenger who receives a top priority dispatch to deliver. He's got certain recipients. He's got to go out and find them and deliver them. And so he says... These are things as of first importance, right? So these are it's top priority. It's critical. It's foremost, foundational, formative beliefs. Again, it's kind of the basic stuff, right? Um, it's the death and burial and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in accordance with the scriptures. So Alan Johnson is a commentator on this, and he says that this section provides us with the clearest, earliest, so it was written around... Uh, A.D. 53, the clearest, earliest summation of the apostolic gospel that we possess, the earliest creedal statement. Right? We can recognize this kind of language, right? It's, it's like a proto-apostles creed that we recite all the time that a lot of us have memorized. It's, it's clearly uh, the form and the content of the, the creed, the apostles' creed and the Nicene creed, uh, both um, were shaped by verses like this one. This language appears just verbatim in those creeds, right? So it's the earliest creedal statement that Paul has here in this text. And the point is not just brevity for its own sake, because I'm running out of parchment, I've got to save my ink, or um, uh, just to make it easy for people to memorize or whatever. The brevity for its own sake is not the point, but, but clarity, Clarity for the life of the congregation. Clarity for the faith of the congregation. So this brief statement, brief though it is, is full of infinite meaning. meaning, And it's, it's the most important truth that we find in this statement. You can, you can easily memorize it, but the riches of grace that are there are inexhaustible. You should memorize it, and then you should spend the rest of your life exploring it and unpacking it and applying it, because it applies everywhere. And it changes everything in your life, right? So Christ died, going through the, the confession here that Paul is giving us, um, this earliest creedal statement. Christ died. That's the event. For our sins. That's the significance of the event, right? So these things matter. Which Christ are we talking about? Right? Because some, some churches will say, you know, oh, being a confessional church, that doesn't matter. Jesus is our creed, right? No, no creed but Christ. Um, but which Christ are we talking about? Because that matters, because we're not talking about the Christ of the Mormons or the Christ of other cults, right? This Christ is a real person, and if you're going to have a relationship with a person, you get to know who that person really is, who they've revealed themselves to be, right? So, uh, so even just saying Christ in this confession, we mean something by that. Jesus Christ, he's the Son of God. He's fully divine and fully human. That's who he has revealed himself to be in the Gospels and throughout all the scriptures. He's the Christ, uh, in fact, not just of the New Testament, right? Because that's where we see him and that's where a lot of our thoughts run. When we think about Jesus, we think New Testament to that uh, third of the scriptures that we have in the New Testament, right? But it's, it's what's in accord with all the scriptures, right? Here we have this, uh, this verse 
a few times uh, restating it, in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures, right? Jesus Christ is revealed by all the Scriptures. He's the hope of the world for true reconciliation to God, which is what all the Scriptures are about. He's the true Passover lamb. He's the true temple. He's the better Moses. He's the great prophet, priest, and king. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life, apart from whom no one knows God. And all the Scriptures are about him. Jesus says that clearly. Uh, and that should be clear to us, and that's what we talk about all the time when we talk about the, the scriptures. Here's, uh, I don't know if you've ever picked one of these up on the book table. It's a Presbyterian Church in America, a little brochure. But it says in, um, uh, in just the beginning of it, it's kind of the tagline of our denomination. The Presbyterian Church in America was formed to be a denomination that is faithful to the scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. And we'll talk about all those things over the course of the series, but that first part faithful to the scriptures, you know, we're being faithful to the scriptures when we say Jesus Christ is the point of all of them. And so wherever we're preaching from, whether it's a New Testament passage, Old Testament, whatever, uh, Jesus Christ is going to be the point, right? Because all the scriptures are about him and how he is the great mediator between us and God. There is, uh, as it says in Acts 4, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's this Jesus Christ who is our only hope, right? The Christ of the scriptures He's our only hope because he is who he is, because he's the God-man, and he died according to the scriptures. That is, um, in his death, he was the true sacrifice that our salvation requires. The scriptures everywhere pointing out the fact that, uh, that blood atonement is necessary for us to be reconciled to God. His blood is the only atoning blood. Uh, all the scriptures are pointing to him. So, in accordance with the scriptures means things like... Uh, in the Old Testament, when you see in Isaiah 53, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. This was a prophecy 700 years before uh, Jesus fulfilled it in his person and work, uh, in his life and death. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement was, that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It was no magic trick. It was no illusion. Right? It, was, it was not just some kind of supernatural ghost uh, appearing on the cross to die. Uh, it was a historical fact. He died. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what's at the heart of our confession and of our, our creed. Right? He died. He really died. He was buried. Death had him in his clutches but it couldn't hold him. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it might not be readily apparent to us that last part, how Paul repeats it and says, you know, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, obviously, right? Uh, if you know the Old Testament, you'd know that, uh, that Jesus was going to be raised on the third day. Um, it might not be readily apparent to us how the Old Testament points to the necessity of the promised Messiah's rising on the third day, but there certainly are many hints in many places. In fact, there's a, a book that, uh, that's out. I don't have it, but a friend of mine, uh, we've talked about it. He was one of his professors or something in school. Uh, uh, Warren Gage, G-A-G-E. It's probably worth getting. Um, it's called Milestones to Emmaus. 
the third day resurrection in the Old Testament. So that, that's a reference to in, um, at the end of Luke's gospel when Jesus is the resurrected Christ. He's walking with his disciples. They're walking to Emmaus, and he opens up all the scriptures to them to show them everything that, that they say uh, concerning him, right? So he's pointing out, he's like giving them, uh, let's, let's do an overview of the Bible. Here it is, death and resurrection, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And um, we don't have what he said, but, uh, but this book, I, I guess, is about, um, and we can find many hints um, without reading the book, but uh, this book is entirely about all the themes and all the places in the Old Testament where uh, it, could, it could be clear to us that, um, that the Messiah was expected and promised to rise from the dead on the third day. So here are a few that I've just, off the top of my head, gathered together. Uh, it says in Isaiah 53 later, uh, from, from what we've just read before, it says, in, uh, starting in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And God says, I will divide him a portion with the many because he poured out his soul to death. Because he died, because he was faithful even to death, because, because the, it was the will of the Lord to crush him for our iniquities and make a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice of him, because he died, God says, his soul shall see and be satisfied. I'll prolong his days. I'll divide him a portion with the many. I'll give. So it, it's this maybe uh, hard for us to understand, but after death, there would be life, and this Savior would, um, would experience blessing and, uh, and reward for, uh, for his sacrifice, for his obedience. And so... Also in Hosea chapter 6, you get a theme uh, of this kind of third day resurrection. He says, after two days he will revive us. This is the people of God uh, speaking about God. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. And then here is, is something that I think is, is uh, pretty interesting. It comes, I actually got the idea out of, it, uh, out of Mike Reeves' book, Rejoicing in Christ, which is part of the, uh, what the home group is going to be reading over the next few months. But early in the scriptures, in the very first chapter, in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this is, for us, it's familiar language. It's the, the creation account, the very beginning. And it says in verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. So this is the first day where uh, we see life, right? Uh, before he's been calling light into existence and forming the, the seas and the dry land and so forth. But this is the first time we see life. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So the third day, from the beginning, the third day is the day of life. And it's the day of new life. And it's the day of new life uh, through death. And you can see that there because... It's pointed out several times that these, the vegetation and the plants and the fruit trees have seeds. And each seed, what's that for? Jesus says, 
unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, um, it remains alone. But if it, if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the picture of a seed and the fact that that's given to us in the very first chapter of the Bible, talking about the, the beginning of God's uh, work of creation and salvation and redemption, uh, his, his plan to glorify humanity uh, in a relationship with him, you've got plugged into uh, reality, this concept of life and then new life through death, right? Um, from the beginning, the third day. The third day is the day of life and new life through death. And this is true. Uh, this is true, all of it, uh, about Jesus Christ and about life and death and resurrection because of the God who revealed it to us <clears throat> and because of, because of who he is who's revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, right? And that's what stands at the heart of our confession. That's what stands at the heart of our creed, uh, our basic understanding of the gospel, our basic arti articulation and distillation of the teachings, of the essential teachings of the scriptures, the heart of our faith is that our God is unique and we know him by his grace. Our God is unique and we know him. Uh, Michael Reeves, in his other book, Delighting in the Trinity, says, What makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God, which God we worship. That is the article of faith that stands before all others. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself, and every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the triune God. Right? So he's the only true God, and there is no other. It says that all over the place in the Bible, uh, especially our Old Testament reading, uh, which Nathan read from Deuteronomy 4, and also Isaiah 45, God makes that point over and over again. There is no God. He is, other than this God, there is no God. There, he is the unique God who has revealed himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So although it's not highlighted in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the ancient creeds and the confessions of the church, which, which, um, which are formed by statements like this, they hang on the two doctrines of the Trinity and Christology. That's the fancy word for doctrine about Christ, Right? The Trinity, who God is, theology proper, uh, three in one, three persons in one God, and who Jesus Christ is who reveals this Trinity to us, right? So all of our creeds, all of our confessional statements, they hang on those two points. Uh, our denominational confession is the Westminster Confession of Faith. I don't know if you've seen that before. Uh, along with the larger and shorter catechisms, I'm not going to read that through for you this morning because it's long. Um, but, uh, but I am going to read a part of another creed. It's called the Athanasian Creed, um, which is, I think, 400 or 500 B.C. Um, I mean, sorry, A.D. Uh, the Athanasian Creed, I'm going to read a few lines from it, and basically it's structured this way, uh, the, the two doctrines of the Trinity and uh, Christ. So first it says, Whoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, the, the universal faith, right? the, the faith that all Christians hold. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. 
then later on, after kind of describing a little bit of what that means, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal and, uh, and, and one God, he says, He therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he describes what it means that Jesus Christ is both God and man, right? That he has two natures in one person. Um, he hasn't given up or, or uh, kind of melted down one nature to make it fit with the other, right? Uh, two natures, fully divine, fully human in one person. And then at the end, the Athanasian Creed says, this is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. So the Trinity and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is the basic confession of our church. We have the Westminster Confession. It's great, right? It's lengthy, but this is the basic confession of our church. It's this God. It's this Jesus Christ. And uh, like I said, we don't just profess these things because they sound neat. You know, when we say the Apostles' Creed, it's easy to memorize, it's short, it's brief. Uh, these, these are the realities. These are the truths that are at the heart of the universe. Right? And they change everything about our view of the world and about our, our view of life and all of our relationships. We don't just make an intellectual exercise of doing theology, but we do it in order to get to know the true God, the only true and living God, to get to know him better. That's why we do theology. We do that around here, right? We think about God uh, to, in order to better enjoy life with him and to better serve him and glorify him right? and live for him. So by his grace, by his grace, this is a key component of the gospel, um, we have something to say about him. Right? We, have, we have revelation by his grace. We have something to confess. There are depths of meaning to be mined in our basic confession, right? depths of meaning to be mine for the sake of our souls, for the sake of all of our relationships, for the sake of the world, our confession is ultimately about him, right? the triune God who reveals himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which means that the core of what we believe, when we say we're a confessional church, the core of what we believe is personal, and it's relational, it's spiritual. Our relationship with God is what this is about. Um, because we have a personal, relational God. The triune God is ultimately personal and relational. He's a God of love. And so that's what our confession is ultimately about. It's, it's love of this God who's revealed himself to us through Christ. So we can root our understanding of the church. We can root our understanding of salvation. We can root our understanding of, of everything in this life and in the whole world. We can root it in our confession because our confession is about the God who's at the root of all these things. We can root our understanding of everything in the confession because the confession itself is about this God who is at the root of all things. Um, by placing our confidence in the content of our confession, not just the fact that we have one, but the content, the person really about whom this confession is about, or these three persons, uh, depending on your perspective there, um, by placing our confidence there, by reorganizing our lives around our creed, by living out our faith, there's real renewal. There's real transformation. And some might want to accuse us of doing a lot of thinking and a lot of talking. You know, you're doing a lot of theology over there. You're talking about the gospel a lot, but you're not doing much, right? Um, some might want to accuse us of that, but we love, we do everything because of our confession, because of who God is. We love 
because God is the God of love, and that's who we confess when we confess him. He's the God of love. We, we don't fear because of who he is and the work that he's done for us. Insecurity doesn't have to be a part of the Christian life. It changes your life. It changes the way that you feel and the way that you act, right? We don't give ourselves to, uh, to sinful pleasures and desires and lusts and um, sexual distortions. We don't do that because we confess the God who is, is purity and pure love and pure delight and pure joy, right? We, um, we pursue peace in relationships because we confess a salvation of reconciliation. It's in our basic confession. This is who God is. He's a reconciling, peacemaking God, and that's who we confess, and that's what our salvation means is being restored to relationships. So we pursue peace in our relationships. We see things like hatred and enmity and divorce as actually antithetical to God's nature, right? Uh, these things are, are absolutely opposed to God's nature, and therefore they're antithetical to the nature of all reality. Hatred, enmity, and divorce, they stand against reality as God has created it, because they stand against God's own nature. Every problem that's addressed in the New Testament, in the New Testament letters to the churches that have lots of problems, which is a normal thing, so it's normal for us to have lots of problems in the church, right? Um, uh, don't be fooled about that. There's no golden age for the church. Uh, just take the, the apostles' letters to the churches. They're pretty messed up, and, and so are we. Um, but every problem that's addressed in these letters is addressed with ultimate reference to our basic confession, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we want to live, not just think, you know, we want to live as a, a congregation of people who look to apply that confession, who look to apply the gospel of God's grace by faith to every area of our lives, would do thoughtfully and earnestly, believing that, that true life, not just intellectual stimulation, right, but true life comes from our faith in the gospel. True life is life in the one in whom we confess. Right? Um, Without the gospel as our touchstone, we'd be nothing. And worse than that, we'd be lost. We'd be without hope. We'd lack assurance of our relationship with God. We have no resources to live connected to true meaning. In any way, our lives would have no significance without the gospel as our touchstone. But with our common confession, we are God's people in this place. In this place, we're united. We are defined both individually and collectively defined by our Creator, by our Redeemer, the one whom we confess with, with every opportunity to live according to his purposes for us by his grace. So let me quote, uh, close from a quote from Jude. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would teach us more about yourself. Um, we suspect that learning more about you won't necessarily mean learning more information. Uh, not necessarily, maybe. Um, but, but if we could recite the creed, then we have all the information about you that we need. 
And we pray that your Holy Spirit would open it up to us, open up the depths, the truth, the glories, the riches of your word, our basic confession, our basic creed, uh, the basic gospel that can be uh, succinctly stated. We pray that you would uh, open it up to us so that we would connect with it uh, more deeply in every part of our lives, that it would transform every area of our lives individually and corporately as this church. We pray that you would uh, grant us the renewal and transformation by your grace that is found as your spirit helps us to understand your word. We're thankful for this word about you. We're thankful for the apostles' gospel, the apostolic gospel that's been handed down to us, that we have received by grace. All of this life with you is by grace. And we're happy to say that we can know you by your grace to us in revealing yourself through Jesus Christ. So um, we pray that you would help us, as Jude uh, said, to um, have mercy on those who doubt and to be patient with those who doubt, to instruct those who don't yet know you, to share the basic gospel with them, to proclaim and confess Christ before men for their sake and for the good of the world. We pray that you would help us to teach uh, each other, to be taught, to teach our children, to teach our friends and families who don't yet know you, but then with this, uh, with this information, we pray that you would help us to uh, go deeper in a spiritual life with you, to be renewed and changed from the inside out for the glory of uh, your grace and your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table.